Hello, and welcome to Informed, a podcast series where you'll hear industry experts share their thought-provoking insights and lessons in the field of medical communications. This series is brought to you by ISMAP and is generously sponsored by MedThink SciComm. I'm Laurie Myers, Director of Global Health Literacy and Oncology Health Equity at Merck and the host of today's podcast. Today, we'll be talking about the essential role of health literacy and language in achieving more equity and inclusion in healthcare communications. With us, we have Stacey Robeson, founder and owner of Communicate Health, Inc., a self-proclaimed health literacy geek and an expert in inclusive communication. Stacey is responsible for leading Communicate Health's content and creative excellence. Communicate Health specializes in designing health information for diverse patient populations and has developed several tools and resources for health professionals, including Health Literacy Online and the quirky e-newsletter, We Heart Health Literacy, which reaches more than 3,000 inboxes each week, including mine. Stacy has been a contributor to numerous top-tier media outlets and has spoken domestically and internationally on the importance of empathy and inclusion in health communication. We're thrilled to welcome her to today's discussion. I am so lucky today to be here with Stacy, who has taught me so much over the years, not only about health literacy and digital health literacy, she literally wrote the book on digital health literacy for the government, but also on this intersection between health literacy, health equity, and culture and language. And I know many of you were lucky enough to hear her speak um, last year at last year's meeting, but today we're really just gonna go in depth about making these topics actionable. How do you take issues related to health literacy, health equity, and their intersectionality, and on a very practical level, make it actionable in your writing? So Stacey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited about our conversation. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks, Lori. You and I have both worked in the field of health literacy for the past 10 plus years. How did you first get into this work? Yeah, so first of all, wow, 10, 10 plus years. Um, we definitely go, go way back. Um, so I started out in state and local public health. I'm a passionate public health person. Public health as a field has a communication problem. This was true 10 years ago. It's true today. We saw a lot of that with um, with COVID. And I think it's gotten a lot better. But, you know, when it comes to public health information, we're talking about really important basic stuff here. It's not like, you know, instructions for how you're going to reprogram your thermostat or something that you expect to be complicated. We're talking about instructions for how you keep your family safe and healthy. And we're giving people this information that's impossible to understand. And a lot of times it's condescending. And this was in the early, the early 2000s. So then you, you know this, Lori, the Institute of Medicine put out this really big report. I think it was 2004 on health literacy. And it was the first thing that got everyone really talking. And I remember thinking like, this is it. This term health literacy just brings together all of the challenges um, that I've been seeing in the field, but also makes room for for solutions and for improvement. Um, so that's how I really got into, into the field and I've been doing this work ever since. 
And I'd love to ask you the same, the same question, Lori. I know yours is a pretty unique position in the pharma world. And, you know, how did, tell us how you got there. So I fell into this job completely by accident. I've been with my, I'd been with my company for about a dozen years and was in a strategy role and somebody was leaving a multicultural marketing role. And they asked me if I'd be willing to fill in for a couple months and people much smarter than me said, you should be focused on health literacy and health disparities. And I'm so grateful they didn't post it because I didn't even know what those terms were. But immediately when you think about innovation, uh, in medicine and vaccines, you realize that if people aren't empowered to understand their disease, how their medicine can help, or how to manage uh, potential side effects, or take their medicine the right way, that it's all for naught. And so the power of health literacy, um, it just grabbed me. And so I've been a passionate champion of health literacy and health equity ever since. That's great. I'm curious if your understanding of health literacy has evolved over the years. And, you know, if you can, do you have a, a favorite definition of, of health literacy? And I wonder if it's maybe changed. Yes, absolutely. Um, and the, the report that you mentioned and healthy people initially talked about a person's ability to understand and use health and in, health information. But what we realize is that the burden really should also, the burden of responsibility really is in the one doing the communication. So I love that Healthy People 2030 has updated the definition to uh, reflect the need for both personal and organizational health literacy. At its core, really what we're talking about is how do you empower patients? How do you empower the general public to make an informed health choice based on information they understand that hopefully is delivered in a way that resonates with them um, that is culturally sensitive? Um, so speaking of definitions, it seems like everyone's talking about health equity right now. So how do you define health equity and how is that different than social determinants of health? Yeah, those are two uh, two hot topics, and you know, there's a lot of definitions out there. I think at its core, health equity, you know, it means that everyone has a fair opportunity, um, a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as as possible. That's that's it in a nutshell. Um, but we know that what makes us healthy or not healthy is not just you know biology or physiology or even you know, I'm using air quotes, but lifestyle choices, because I really dislike this, this term. But, you know, it's the full spectrum of things. It's housing, employment, access to food. And those are the things we call the social determinants of health. You know, things like living conditions, money, um, power, social support. And so addressing the social determinants of health is key to achieving health equity. So in order for everyone to have this fair shot at being healthy, we have to remove the obstacles to health. And the big ones are, are things like poverty and discrimination. And poverty and discrimination result in lack of access to good jobs, to quality education, to safe housing, to healthcare, to all of those things. So they really go, health equity and social determinants of health really go hand in hand. And until we really start to address those social determinants of health, we're not going to achieve health equity. So where does health literacy fit into all of that? Yeah, so health literacy, there's a ton of overlap 
with health literacy and health equity and social determinants of health. So health literacy, just like um, income and education, it's also a social determinant or a social driver of, of health. And, you know, you defined it, Lori, as, you know, access to health information and, and services. And that access isn't equitable for everyone right Absolutely. now. You know, so we can't really have one without the other. We can't achieve health equity without investing in informed and empowered patients, right? That's the health literacy piece, investing in that access. And I think on the other side, we can't achieve health literacy without removing some of those barriers, some of those obstacles like poverty and discrimination so that we can lower the barriers to care. And I think we saw this unfortunately, really clearly during COVID-19. You know, if you look at the disproportionate rates of, of COVID infections and hospitalizations and death among Black Americans, that was linked to really chronic, persistent health, social, economic inequities facing people of color. And those inequities are rooted in deep-seated oppression and discrimination and structural racism in this country. So Absolutely. if you look at what's been you know, happening in the world, whether it's um, police violence and the Black Lives Matter protests or the COVID-19 disparities, the, the common denominator there is racial injustice. And so we're in the middle of some really important reckoning in this country. And I think there's been a renewed interest in health equity and racial equity, but in health equity. And that's, I think, why you and I are here talking about all of this today. And I think, you know, we're also seeing this play out at the organizational level. So there's this new investment and attention to things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, both, you know, in the workplace, but also in the work that we're doing. And both are really important in this, this moment. Absolutely. And one thing I've learned about health literacy is it's not a one size fits all. And I think the same is also true when you're talking about DEI or diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, so could you talk to that? It sounds like you definitely agree. I definitely agree. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, no one size fits all. I mean, we just, yeah, we were just unpacking all of these terms, health literacy, health equity. Um, it's the same with diversity, equity, and inclusion, or right, like you said, DEI, um, EDI, people call it all different things. There's, you know, DEI committees, DEI initiatives. What does this even mean? Um, and you're right. There's no single approach or playbook to this work. It's not like uh, a check the box kind of thing. It's really about a new level of intentionality um, and bringing that intentionality to our work, whether that's, you know, in our professional writing or our interactions with each other, with our, with our coworkers. Absolutely. And so when you think about what we do in healthcare and pharma, it's about communication. And of course we know that language, culture, race, and other identities have a big impact on how we communicate. And as you think about how do we, in our roles, 
make health equity actionable, make health literacy actionable. It means that even small details like word choice can have a huge impact and make a big difference. So do you have a go-to style guide or a reference that you think uh, reflects the most up-to-date thinking on inclusive terminology? First, let me say that I love that you just used the term inclusive because I spend you know a lot of time these days talking about and advocating for inclusive language. And I think inclusive language at the end of the day is really about making space for different voices, different identities, different perspectives and experiences. And so practicing inclusive writing forces us to be intentional about our word choice. And more often than not, that makes our writing stronger. So for folks who are interested in this, there are a lot of great resources out there. I want to start with um, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. They just published some updated guidance on, as they call it, the reporting of race and ethnicity in medical and science journals. Mm. This was just um, last month, and they did a really great job. So I think it's, first of all, super important for a publication like JAMA to take a stand on a lot of this stuff. So Absolutely. Um, that is the first one I would say um, that folks should check out. And on the heels of that, the, the CDC, so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they just published what they're calling uh, health equity guiding principles. Um, and they include some preferred terminology to use and words to avoid and things like that. So that's another one to check out. Uh, and if you want to get a little bit more radical, uh, there are two other style guides online that I really like. One is diversitystyleguide.com and the other one is consciousstyleguide.com. So those two are maybe a bit more radical, but if you want more of a kind of deep dive into that inclusive language, those are, those are two other ones to check out. And I will put in a shameless plug for the CDC's health literacy site, too. For those who are looking to learn more about health literacy, it is a phenomenal resource with a lot of free training. Um, so, Susie, we all have our own unique identities. And how do you think this shows up in our writing, either intentionally or unintentionally? So, for example, our listeners can't see us right now, but I know that both you and I identify as white women. And I believe that's important to call out. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, it is really important. And especially as a communicator, you know, it's really important that I take that time to consider my own positionality when I'm speaking or writing about a topic. So you called out, Lori, that we're both white women among a lot of other identities that we'll, we'll probably get into. But, you know, some parts of my social identity give me an advantage and other parts of my social identity are a disadvantage. And I think one of the hardest things for us as humans, the collective us, is um, being able to hold on to both of those truths at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a, a businesswoman, and so I get a lot of recognition for being a woman entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And that's super important. Um, as well, you should. You've yeah, done phenomenal yes, work. We're should. so thrilled and honored to have you here today. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, and it's really important to me, but you know, it's also only one part of my identity and I'm also an LGBTQ entrepreneur and that brings a whole other set of 
perspectives and experiences and challenges. And yet, even though I'm a woman and I'm gay, I still benefit from uh, incredible societal privilege because I'm white. So, you know, all of these are, are true. It's not that one sort of trumps or negates the other. We all have these complex layers of identity. And because we have this, you know, we have our own bias, our own implicit and subconscious prejudice and bias because of these layers of identity. And that affects how we communicate. It affects the words we use. And, you know, we may have the best intentions, but sometimes our word choice sends the wrong message. And so, you know, by practicing inclusive writing and inclusive communication, we bring that awareness to our work. And sometimes it's just being able to acknowledge, like, there's more to this topic or this story than the study data. You know, there are other, there are other stories and layers of identity and experiences and for us to bring that, that awareness. One of the things you're implying is that this is work, right? In order to be an effective communicator and be inclusive, you need to work at this and work to understand it, right? Yes. And in along the same veins, you and I go way back. So we're having a real conversation. In <laughs> real, our, talk. real talk. Real and talk. And in our pre-recording prep, you noted, noted that you identified as queer. And I'll be honest, I am dedicated to this. I work in language. I work in equity. And I was surprised to see that word. To me, it's a word I haven't heard in a long time and it has negative connotations. And it showed me, it reminded me how much I have yet to learn despite working hard to educate myself on these issues. And quite frankly, how I'm sure sometimes I do it wrong despite having the best intent. So Let's talk about, you know, one thing that that people are focusing a lot on right now is gender identity and sexual orientation in professional writing, including the use of pronouns. Could you guide us here, Stacey? That would be great. Sure. And yeah, first, let me start by saying thanks for for sharing that, Lori. And I love um, so much that you just said, you know, how much you still have to learn. That's true for all of us. Um, But I love that, you know you're leading with that curiosity, you know? So instead of that fear or instead of maybe those judgments, it's like, how do we all start to lead with that curiosity? Like, curious what this like for you, or I'm curious why you use this word and not that word. Um, it's just so, it's just so important. Um, but yeah, so the term queer is actually a really great illustration of an important concept when it comes to inclusive language. And that is uh, words change, Mm -hmm. meaning over time, and new words enter our vocabulary all the time. So language is constantly evolving. And the word queer is a a perfect illustration of that. So like you, I think you're alluding to, Lori, it started as, you know, kind of a derogatory term, but it's now been embraced by a lot of people and it has different meanings. You know, sometimes it's used as like an umbrella term to refer to all people, you know, whose sexual orientation is 
basically not heterosexual. So <laughs> it's like heterosexual and then, you know, this umbrella term for like everyone else. Um, and it has a little bit of political or kind of anti-status quo to it. So there's a little resistance in the term, which I'll be honest, I like. Um, <laughs> but what I also like about it is that it makes it makes space for the diversity of experience. You know, our culture loves dualisms, right? Like you're man or woman, gay or straight, black or white. Um, but we know there's a, a lot of gray. And even when it comes to sexual orientation and identities, those change over time. So, you know, for me, the term queer just allows that space for some of those nuances and some of that gray area, which I really like. Uh, but back to your question about how we handle this in our professional writing. First of all, I'll preface with always changing, always evolving. So I'll give some guidance today, but don't, don't go back and listen to this, you know, <clears throat> podcast as the, the authority because <laughs> this is really tricky stuff. But I think um, one of the core things, you know, when you're writing about sex and gender is to be careful not to reinforce like harmful or negative stereotypes. So that's sort of the first thing to keep in mind. And if you're writing about gender identity specifically, you want to talk about, you know, someone being assigned male or female at birth rather than born a boy or a girl. And you want to include the term or the option for non-binary for folks who don't identify as either male or female. Uh, I like to remind people that things like bathrooms can be gender neutral, but people are not gender neutral. People are non-binary. So that's a good term to keep in mind. Um, and I think in our professional writing, another thing to keep in mind is to be careful not to conflate orientation and behavior. So for example, uh, it's a good practice to say men who have sex with men, if that's what you're talking about, which is the behavior, um, independent of how people may self-identify as their sexual orientation. And then I think you're... You also brought up the, the great pronoun issue. Um, if only the English language had a gender-neutral singular pronoun. <laughs> that would be so much better, wouldn't it? <laughs> Alas, uh, we do not. So, you know, there's, there's different parts of this discussion. So on an individual level, if you're dealing with a person, it's always great just to ask directly. Um, people ask me this all the time. You can just ask someone directly. It's totally okay. You can be like, hey, just want to be sure I get this right. Which pronouns do you use? Totally fine. So in, in professional writing, and this is becoming acceptable, I think, by an increasing number of, of style guides, they're starting to accept the singular they. And that's always my preference for instances where a person's gender isn't known or also maybe isn't relevant. So rather than gendering them, we could just use they. I know grammar, grammar police out there, it's still, it's still a touchy topic, but um, more and more actually style guides are, are accepting singular they. So I think that's, that's a direction that we're moving in. And I'm also seeing a lot more of people 
adding she, her to their signatures, for instance, or indicating it. And so that's something I've done in LinkedIn and my signatures. And I would definitely recommend that to folks as well, just as a little, uh, as a signal, right? That it's okay to ask, it's okay to talk about. That's such a great point. Yeah. I know another topic that people struggle with in writing sometimes is about often is about race and ethnicity. So how do you navigate that? Yeah, that that updated uh, JAMA guidance I mentioned earlier is a really good primer on this this topic. Perfect. And this is this is a big one to unpack. You know, it's important to understand first that both race and ethnicity are social constructs. Race is what we see most often if we're looking at scientific or population data. So I think we tend to think of it as being this um, very sound thing. It is, it is also a social construct. Um, but, but race is what we deal with the most in our, in our scientific writing. And the term, you know, people of color, that has become really common. Mm-hmm. And in general, that's a, a safe term to use, but it may not always be appropriate in your science writing, because if you can say something more specific, it's better to do sure. that. So if you're not actually talking about all people of color, then be as specific as possible. You know, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans. Um, another thing here I think that we need to keep in mind as, as professional writers is that difference between race and racism, mm-hmm. especially if we're talking about risk factors. So this comes up a lot in our, our scientific communications. And when we cite race, as a risk factor for something, some kind of biological condition, we're often using it as a really clumsy proxy for either genetic ancestry, which we know doesn't neatly align with race, or we're using it instead of talking about social factors like access to healthcare, like those social determinants of health we talked about earlier. So For example, if we say black people are at a higher risk of dying from COVID-19. Okay, so at first blush, that sounds like an accurate statement. But if we can name racism as a risk factor here, it's actually more accurate. So if we can say, you know, due to the health effects of racism, black people are dying of COVID-19 at higher rates than white people. So we've now called out that we're actually talking about racism and now we put the burden where it belongs, frankly, which is on on the system and on the institutions. So Stacey, you just talked about race and about racism, and that is much broader than medical writing. Um, Before we get back to our conversation at hand, do you have any favorite places or favorite techniques in which people can better understand systemic racism and um, injustice, which you know many people became aware of, um, you know, when when police brutality became um, became highlighted last year. But we know that these issues have existed for many years. If people are interested in learning about that, separate from this discussion, is there is there a way that you would suggest? Yeah, that's a great. That's a great question. And yes, it's true that, you know, this a style guide will not <laughs> will not have all answers to all things on race and, and racism. And I think there's there's a couple things. You know, there's um there's seeking out those different 
perspectives and experiences. So whether those are with coworkers, with friends, um, being able to have some of those honest conversations, I think is, is really critical. And at the same time, as white people, we can't just be like, oh, hey, all of our colleagues of color, please now educate <laughs> me about Absolutely. this horrible thing, systemic racism, so I can now understand what you have been living with for, you know, centuries. So there's this there's this piece where um, we have to seek out some of that learning on our own. And I think Absolutely. Um, actually I've been really impressed with a lot of the, the journalism that's come out since um, Black Lives Matter movement and since COVID that's really starting to talk about some of these issues. So I think really staying up on on some of that is important and and also noticing, you know, where your information and news and art and culture comes from. Like start looking at who's the author on that article, who's the, you know, who's the artist, who's Absolutely. the musician that you're listening to and start to bring in those diverse voices on your own and it starts to really enrich your your life and also give you a more nuanced understanding of the world. And you know what, on a very, again, just to come back to a very practical level in terms of things that people can do, a couple just quick examples. So recently we developed a health literacy glossary and we reached out and sought the input from our employee business resource group. So just as an example of a tangible insight from that, it's something that you talked about earlier, which was avoid gender specific language where possible. Now there's sometimes you can't avoid it because it's ne necessary for comprehension, but you know, removing the words female and male because you could inadvertently um, you know, exclude the healthcare of people who identify as you know, non-binary, right? It's a very simple example. And another thing for those of us who are fortunate to speak externally, I've been asking people when they approach me about speaking, could you speak to the diversity on your panel, both from a gender as well as a racial and ethnic perspective? And you would be astounded at how often, um, you probably wouldn't be astounded, but you know, it's a question that as an ally, we have, you know, as an ally, we have a responsibility to do the work ourselves, to educate ourselves, and then to ask important questions like this to, to, yes. um, to get to it. Yes. So coming back to our topic at hand around medical writing, when we dig into health and social inequities, there's so much intersectionality and a lot of this stuff is systemic. So how do we talk about people who are at higher risk of disease without further stigmatizing them, which really builds on, on your last comment? Yeah, for sure. So, right. Terms like vulnerable, marginalized, or high risk, those are problematic for a couple of reasons. First, they're vague. So if we want to think about, you know, I like to argue that um, inclusive writing is actually accurate writing. It's actually more accurate. So we don't want to use vague language like that. We want to use really specific language. Who are we, who are we talking about when we say those terms? So the first problem is that they're vague. The second is that they imply that the condition is inherent to that group. So rather than addressing, you know, the actual causal factors, I like to say that, you know, these are states, not traits. Yes. So they change, right? It's a state, not a trait. So we want to talk about groups that have been, you know, economically marginalized or groups experiencing disadvantage because of a sp specific reason. You know, maybe it's structural racism or chronic underinvestment. 
I also know uh, for scientific publications, a lot of times people will say, you know, groups disproportionately affected by X or Y, or groups experiencing disproportionate rates of this condition. I think that's a better way to, to talk about it. If we can avoid that dehumanizing language and opt for, you know, empowering language. So I think you've just brought us back full circle to health literacy. So I believe and you believe that we can't achieve health equity without investing in informed, empowered patients. So could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I 100% agree. You know, health equity and health literacy go hand in hand. So, and we, you know, we know that access to information, yes, that's a key piece of health equity, but we also know that's not enough, right? It needs to be information that people can understand and relate to. And communication ultimately is all about, you know, meeting people where they are. So using words and examples that are familiar and respectful, making sure they resonate, you know, each person who walks through your door or uses your product or enrolls in your trial, they have unique experiences and needs. And so our job as communicators is to make everyone feel seen and heard. And we do this through language. And I think that's ultimately the crux of health literacy. I could not agree more. You know, it's such an important time right now. It feels like the right time to be having these conversations, even if they're messy, even if what you say about pronouns now, a year from now may not be right. Um, we have to try. And, you know, when I think about people who are talking about these issues, many of them are afraid to write or afraid to say the wrong thing. And so they stay silent rather than participate uh, because they don't want to offend anybody inadvertently. And I've learned from colleagues that it really is better to ask with an open heart and an open mind if you're not sure and learn um, rather than to not speak at all. And, and I think back to when I first began this journey and I was asking um, a colleague to help me understand essentially the diversity of cultures uh, within, um, within the Hispanic population. And I apologized. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know. And he said, don't ever apologize that you want to learn. And so I'm happy to teach you. And, and so I just want to, you know, leave people with, you know, allyship is essential to achieving real change. And I wonder, you know, as a final thought, Stacey, what advice would you give to people who are concerned about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing? Um, how can they get involved or how can they do more? I yeah, I love that you shared that that story. And yes, it is it is messy. We can't be afraid of of the mess because this is exactly the right time for us all to engage in these conversations and in this learning. So I couldn't agree with you more, Lori. I would say ask, engage in conversations, stay curious. You know, we are all learning. So ask for feedback. And if someone gives you feedback on how you could have maybe used a different term or a label, that's fantastic. You know, that, that kind of feedback is a gift. And, you know, the cool thing about language is there's often a ripple effect where, you know, people tend to repeat the language that they read or hear. So if you start talking about people with substance use disorder instead of drug users, or maybe you start using the term pregnant people, you can actually, you know, help people feel more compassionate and 
How awesome is that at the end of the day in terms of, of what we do as communicators? Stacy, it is awesome. You are awesome. It's been an awesome conversation. So thanks so much for taking the time to help us better understand these issues as writers, as people, and as um, people looking to make an impact. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lori. This has been really fun and messy, and that's the best kind of conversation. Thanks for listening to Informed for Medical Communication Professionals. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to producer Leah Longbreak and audio engineers Dave Douglas and Ian Douglas. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, inform your colleagues, and rate our show highly if you liked what you heard today. We hope you'll also join us at an upcoming ISMAPU webinar or even consider becoming a member of our association. Just go to ismap.org. That's ISMPP.org to learn more. Thank you for listening.